This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello and welcome to Save a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an interview for you. Yes. We have so many interviews just stockpiled. I'm, I'm glad we're, we're sharing them. Yes, because uh, some of them, uh, th- this one in particular, are just so much like the the, the voice of a, of a person and a personality and mm-hmm. um, within them a part of a, of a culture, a subculture. And yes, this one is uh, Mr. Dickie Brennan. Who we met in our trip to New Orleans, which also feels like, when was that? Oh, gosh. Decades. Millennia. Millennia. <laughs> Who even knows? No one was even alive then. <laughs> um, yes, uh, the, the Brennan family collectively owns and operates 13 restaurants in New Orleans. They're a little bit of a dynasty. Yes, and we spoke in our New Orleans episodes about how we got in touch with Dickie in in particular and like meeting him. And it was, it was really great because it was just kind of comedy of errors. Oh, yeah, that turned out in the absolute best way possible yes. because we weren't looking to we, – we, we thought that he was above our, our, our pay grade. Yes. And his publicist was just sort of like – our marketing human was just sort of like, oh, yeah, no, you want to talk to Dickie? And we were like, sure. And we got po'boys and fries and one of those uh, – we were there for the <laughs> bourbon thing. We got one of those too. So it was pretty – Oh, pretty good. It was incredibly lovely. I was not expecting to eat that much, and then I ate everything. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, there's not too many mouth noises in this interview. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. And also, I believe he he invited us to his house at Mardi Gras, and I haven't forgotten it is all I'm saying. <laughs> so hope you're serious. And he comes knocking on the door. Hello. <laughs> He's like, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> How could you forget us? Oh, I'm sure he he strikes me as the kind of guy who doesn't forget a face or a name. I agree. Anyway, um, so yes, let us get to the interview. Picture it. We're on the um the the, the interior balcony at a at a large table in Bourbon House in New Orleans, which is this grand, beautiful, decked out restaurant. And uh, we've been in a crazy rush all morning trying to figure out how to actually get into the building. Uh, we finally get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we through through a different entrance. Yes, go up to a bartender at this relatively unrelated bar, mm-hmm. and say, we're so sorry. Do you know where Dickie Brennan might be? And he just points kind of kind of languidly mm-hmm. and says, why, he's sitting right over there. 
Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he was. So 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 we're still in this headspace of like, where are we going? And then we get up to this like just beautiful empty place, and Dicky is so gracious. And this interview follows. Hi, uh, who are you? <laughs> I'm Dickie Brennan. <laughs> and uh, uh, good you're, morning. Uh, good morning. <laughs> uh, and and you uh, you are the founder and an owner of a restaurant group here in New Orleans, yeah? You know, I... Or, I, I or founder of several restaurants. Sorry, go ahead. 25 years ago, I started a company, but I grew up in a family business, restaurant family. So, you know, my entire life has been involved in the restaurant world, food world. So, What what was it like growing up uh, in and around your family's restaurants? You know, uh, we lived in this neighborhood called the Garden District. Uh And in the neighborhood, they had this restaurant called Commander's Palace. So Commander's is like the second oldest restaurant in New Orleans. So in 69, we, uh, Mr. Morant passed away. My dad went to pay respects. We lived two blocks away from the road to Miss Moran. And she's like, I'm 80 years old. I, I don't want to run a restaurant. My kids, well, at the time we had Brennan's down the French Quarter. Uh-huh. And my dad's like, well, we're in the restaurant business. We live in the neighborhood. If you want to sell it, let us know. So we bought Commander's Palace in 1969. So as a kid, are you kidding? This was like, you know, our our play playground, you know, so I I was around nine years old at the time, and I can't recall a time in my life where I wasn't doing something around this wonderful restaurant that, uh, you know, it was just a special part of my life. When, uh, when did you, when did you start cooking? I guess, you know, at the restaurant, I might have been 12, 13 years old, and it was that summer. Paul Prudhomme was our chef. Um, you know, and I guess uh, maybe earlier, but in the professional kitchen, it was more around 12 or 13 that I actually got to participate, you know, in the professional kitchen, which was kind of neat. But at, uh, at, at home, uh, you, you're making a divide. Had you always been in there? So... I love food. I mean, I'd come home from school and make, I'd scramble six eggs just as a snack to hold me over till dinner. So, um, so no, I, I was always cooking. Both of my grandmothers were phenomenal cooks. Uh, and uh, my mother's a great cook, but she was running around busy. So um, we had this wonderful woman that, um, they're all, all over this city, these wonderful women that, um, that just can cook. You know, and they cook for families and uh, babysit or just, it's like a second mother, you know. And I grew up with a woman called Mandy and, you know, just, it was interesting when someone's cooking. So, I mean, I had so much opportunities to be around cooking as a kid, professionally, at home. I mean, it's, it's a, really part of the culture in New Orleans. Uh, what kind of what kind of dishes do you remember from back then from your childhood? What's interesting is my dad would sit down early. We'd have dinner at the house, and then he'd walk two blocks of Commanders and go taste everything in the kitchen, and eventually have a meal there. So we, you know, at home it was more home cooked, whole recipes. Uh, you know, it'd be red beans and rice. Uh, with pickle pork, sweet pickle pork. I don't think many people nowadays experience pickle pork in their red beans, but you know, as a kid, it was the protein, the meat that we would all fight over when we're having red beans and rice. Nowadays, everything's on Dewey sausage, you know, sausage and your red beans. Uh, just a lot of chicken creole, you know, just great smothered chicken, you know, with rice. I mean, we're Louisiana, so there was rice in a lot of our meals, you know, that you would have. So, uh, gumbo, I mean, it doesn't stop. There was always something coming out of a pot. So, um, how, how is, uh, how has all of that influenced what y'all do at your restaurants? You know, what I love about New Orleans, um, one, our climate, we can, farm year round so there's always something coming in the season so that 
played a lot of what you'd eat at home as well as what was on the ration menu. The other thing is, is we're at the mouth of Mississippi River. It's the most fertile fish grounds in the world. So, I mean, we have so much a bounty of seafood, and it's all seasonal. And some of it's in the marsh, some of it's in the, in the coastal waters, and a lot of it's inland. So, I mean, like when our blue crabs are going out of season, crawfish are coming in the season. So there's always something that's going to peak at different times of the year. And really, I mean, our philosophy in the restaurants, and it's the same thing at home, is we're eating what's in season, what's peaking. And, uh, and it change, you know, there's a lot of options there. When did you when did you know that you wanted to be part of the part of the family business? Did you ever ever have a moment where you're like, nah, screw this, I'm gonna <laughs> None of us were encouraged to be in the business. You know, and, and um, so there's no pressure to be in the business. I can't think of a time where I was like, screw this, I don't want to be in the business. Uh, I just was, you know, I say I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I grew up in just a hell of a time in a hell of a location with a hell of a family. Um, you know, I mentioned Commander's Palace when our family bought it in, in my earlier years. Um, we, my dad and his brothers and sisters, left Brennan's in the 70s, mid-70s. We decided to divide up the family business. And so, uh, so when they moved into Commander's, Brennan's was their flagship. And Brennan's, you know, my dad worked Sunday breakfast because his oldest sister, Ella, wanted to work Saturdays because she loved entertaining. So he'd wake up and go to work, do a thousand people for breakfast at Brennan's. I mean, it was our big signature dip. When we bought Commanders, if 20 people came by after church on a Sunday, that was a good crowd. So he's bored. He's like, I can't. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not doing breakfast at Brennan's. It's, that's, that restaurant, we leave it there. So we were somewhere on a trip and we're eating, and there was a band out in the lobby playing some music, and we're having brunch. And he just, he came home and said, I want to do a jazz brunch. And so he called Alvin Acorn, and a great trumpet player. And so three men showed up, and they roamed around the dining room. Paul Prudhomme was the chef at the time. We did this great brunch menu. And, you know, I worked the first jazz brunch with my dad. You know, that was a... Um, you know, and to see where it is today, I mean, every Russian city has jazz brunch. Oh, right, yeah. but, I mean, to, to be able to participate with your family and watch them, you know, create something. Yeah. Uh, it's been so interesting. I mean, it's always something like that. <laughs> and, jazz, with them. and jazz brunches we were talking about. Um, yeah, how, how does, do you, do you feel like there's, uh, there's like cross, cross connections in, in between how, um, uh, like how, how, how a kitchen works and, and how uh, those those musicians work? like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we always say cooking with jazz. I mean, you know, our, our seasonings here, I mean, we use a blend of seasonings, uh, you know, and it's to really enhance the flavors, take something, makes it blossom. So, I mean, it's like making music. There's definitely a great correlation between making music and making food. I mean, it's... But we, um, you know, the other thing that happened in the 70s, and Paul Prudhomme was an American local guy, whereas a lot of the chefs were Europeans. Um, and Paul knew all the farmers and fishermen. You know, they grew up in the country. So what started happening at Commanders early on in the 70s, we started doing local regional foods. Um, 1981, Commanders turned 100 years old. And so we, there was this award that they would give fine dining restaurants around the country, the Holiday Awards. And uh, it was always done in Chicago, an annual dinner, and people would receive the awards. All the restaurateurs around the country would go and meet. So we asked, could we host it in New Orleans this year and have everybody help us celebrate a restaurant being 100 years old in America? And so everyone, you know, so all these restaurateurs, chefs from around the country came to New Orleans. And I'll never forget the dinner. Uh, one of the courses was soft shell crabs, which it was the time of the year we didn't know if they were going to be busting out or not. So we had plan B if it wasn't going to be a soft shell. But it came from a certain farmer. Uh, we had squab. It was from a farmer in Mississippi. Uh, everything on the menu, and we had it written, 
was what was the where where did it come from, who was raising it, and we had an American wine with each course. And this is 1981. Yeah, that I mean, was we before. Had, we had Duck on 78 Cabernet, which was his first vintage. Uh, so I mean, it was cake bread. We had Callaway made a, a late harvest dessert wine called Sweet Nancy. So I mean, everything was American, and we that night told all these restaurateurs, which basically back then you were either Italian, French, German, if you were a fine dining restaurant, most of them were in the downtowns, you know, they weren't neighborhood restaurants that we know today. And when that, the next year was the first American Regional Symposium where people in America started saying we're a regional American restaurant, we're not a French, German, or Italian restaurant. So I mean, that dinner, God, look at the world we have today. I mean, it's it's classically trained uh, American chefs, you know. Institutes like CIA have given young Americans, men and women, the opportunity to become great chefs, you know. And so these things didn't, ha it wasn't an American food scene. It was, you were classically European trained. And then that just changed. I mean, in the 80s, it changed. We became American. We started educating. And uh, so much of that happened at Commanders, and I, you know, like I said, I can't believe I was sitting there as a young kid. I mean, that's where I started, you know, and it's never stopped the American food scene. So it's been a nice journey. Yeah. Uh, do you, I mean, it, it, it sounds like you, like firsthand personally witnessed Cajun and Creole cuisine go from being something that was really just cooked in homes or cooked in neighborhoods to to a national to a, to a national trend and something that people respected I mean I mean fruit home come on like how how wild has that been <laughs> you know the creativity is really I guess when you mentioned Cajun or Creole for so many generations it was the same dish there wasn't a lot of evolution. You know, red beans and rice was red beans and rice. Uh, gumbo was gumbo. Uh, but with, in the last 20, 30 years, and it's, I really believe it's because young American men and women have gotten these formal educations, so they have this foundation to work from. And I just think in America we're creative. You know, in a city like New Orleans is incredibly creative. I mean, my God, we created jazz. Prior to jazz, you had old world music, everybody played a certain way. I mean, what happened in New Orleans, look how it's changed the world, you know, of music. So this creativity, and that's what I love. It's hard for us to say this is a Creole or a Cajun dish because they've all, you know, the regional seasonal products, you know, in both cuisines, and now they're blended, um, you know, which is exciting because it's, food is always, um, should evolve and it's just like us i mean i think my palate evolves over the years you know whether it's food wine spirits i have to, you know my palate keeps changing so it's nice to see food evolving at the same time <laughs> jazz did i say jazz we have some more of our interview with dickie for you but first we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! Roller coaster! What's that spell? San Diego! 
If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back into the interview. The name New Orleans is in more songs than any other city tenfold. Really? Huh. Mm. Because it, it inspired so mm-hmm. many musicians. I mean, <laughs> House of the Rising Sun. I mean, oh, so many sure. songs that you yeah. know. Yes, uh, uh, creation and tradition. Are, are you are you sort of a nerd for, for the cocktail history around here? Have you... <laughs> yes. I don't know if I call it a nerd, oh. but, but I'm passionate. Hey, I think I think and everyone's. I, oh, go ahead. I can't help it. I mean, my God, it's so much a part of uh, how we... New Orleanians live life. Uh, you know, and so it's a daily part of our culture is connecting with people. And the majority of that is connecting on a table with food. And how can you not have a great meal without spirits, wine, uh, and it's such a rich tradition in this city, you know, I mean, being a part of creating a cocktail, you know, uh, it goes way back, originated something like a cocktail, just the the bourbon, I mean, the way bourbon evolved, it was uh, New Orleans at the time wasn't getting, a, you know, the brandy coming from the old world, so they knew they were making some whiskey up the river, and they said, send us some whiskey. Well, they didn't know how to ship it or whatever. They had to figure out how to take, which basically was White Dog, I mean, it was Moonshine, and they had to figure out how to get it to New Orleans. And so they took these wooden kegs, and a lot of the kegs were used for things like nails, storage, that had rust. So they had to sanitize these wooden kegs, which they charred the inside. They put this White Dog in the keg, sent it down the river. Well, when it got here and they drank it, they sent word back up. They said, send us some more of the red whiskey. And they're like, <laughs> what are they talking about? So, I mean, it, that you know, that's why we're sitting here in Bourbon House. You know, I grew up with a dad, and I think so many people drank the European spirits, the scotch, gins, vodkas. He just kept saying, it's American. Drink, drink, drink bourbon. It's American. Um, you know, and that even goes back to the way we evolved the American theme for our restaurants back in the 70s and 80s. So, um, you know, and the other part of the story with with the bourbon whiskey coming down here, they didn't send the barges back up river then. So that most of the houses here, the foundations, are made from the wood off these barges. So the men that came down from Kentucky, and it was a great opportunity for them to make money, they get enough money and it was... Uh, it was the Spanish that brought horses to America. So 
New Orleans was Spanish occupied. I still don't know why we call it the French Quarter. It was <laughs> built during Spanish occupation. But so they had the money and they would buy a horse. And there's a trail. It's the Natchez Trace. It goes from New Orleans to Louisville. And they would ride back up to go back home. And those horses are what seeded the horse industry in Kentucky. So New Orleans is a very interesting city when you study and you find out, you know, just all this stuff. So, you know, that's why I say, I mean, the food world is attention is creative it's always evolving it's living it's growing there's no better city to be in the food world than new orleans so i've never not thought of doing anything other than what we do um how uh all right so so you've got you've got bourbon coming in from kentucky you've got rum coming in from the caribbean uh and all kinds of other other ingredients floating around how did I mean, other people are just kind of going like, oh, that's great. How did cocktail culture start here? Going way back in time with the creation of a cocktail, I think it was it was just a part of the, uh, the daily routine. You know, they were called coffee houses, and that's where you would take the break to go in and have a drink, um, you know, in the middle of the day or in the morning. You know, when I lived in France, if you'd go to the market early in the morning and you go into the coffee shops, someone might be having an espresso, but someone else is having a cocktail, you know, um, and then, you know, an absinthe or whatever. So I think a lot of that culture was here in the city, um, drinking. Um, but what I love about today is it's like when in the 80s we started educating with culinary institutes. We now have a generation and they've gotten educated in the spirits world. Whether we call them mixologists, you know, not quite sure yet where we're going with the name, but they're professionals and they really uh, can give a customer an experience that you didn't experience when you walked in and said, give me an old fashioned. You know, now it's, what bourbon would you like with your old fashioned? You know, and then the young mixologist saying, well, tell me kind of what, what, what do you like? You know, what, do you like sweet? Do you like bitter? You know, it picks the right wrong or picks the right bourbon for you to have that great experience. Um, so, I mean, it's, I don't know what it's going to look like in 10 years, but what's happened the last 10 years has been crazy, certainly in the spirits world. Um, are there any drinks for which you're a traditionalist? Is there anything that you want the one way and that's the way that it should be? Um, or do you like do you like riffs? Do you like that experimentation? You know, there's some things that I don't want to mess with, uh, like a Bloody Mary. You know, there's the original recipe, it's very basic. You know, great tomato juice, a little bit of a uh, Worcestershire sauce, Tabasco, that's it. Um, and I think when you make that drink and you drink it with a good vodka, it works. Nowadays, we're sticking so many things in it, and it gets too gritty because you're putting all these too much pepper, too much all you know. That's I'm like, don't mess with a good thing. Now, if you want to mess with it, call it something else, <laughs> because we certainly have created some great things from a Bloody Mary. So I'm all about the evolution of whatever, whether it's food spirits, cocktails, uh, I think that's the exciting part. And, uh, and we've never been in a better time where the quality of the evolution of these drinks or whatever has been, in, has been better. I mean, it's phenomenal what's going on right now. Um, is, are there any uh, evolutions from, from uh, your places here that you're particularly proud of or excited about? So, I grew up where we made a basic milk punch, and for years it was brandy milk punch. Then our family started doing bourbon milk punch. Um, so I grew up with a very simple bourbon milk punch recipe. And when we opened up here on Bourbon Street, Bourbon House, the this proliferation of 
daiquiri shops up and down the street, you know, and they're real sweet. I mean, not knocking them. And the fun thing about New Orleans, you can walk up and down the street with a cocktail. Um, so we knew we wanted to do something to add to, to enhance, to be a little different. Um, and so we created a frozen bourbon milk punch. It's, uh, I call it an adult milkshake. It's basically, <laughs> you know, it's not what you would find in the in the daiquiris, you know, sweet. And all. It, I mean, this is, it's a custard that we freeze with bourbon and, you know, um, and it's, it's really become one of our signature items. Uh, so it was a good evolution. Oh, um, there's riffs on the frozen bourbon punch too. Because now we have the frozen bourbon punch, but we also have at Mardi Gras, King Cakes are really popular here. So we do the King Cake Bevy, which is the King Cake version of the frozen bourbon punch. Mm. What is what is that look like? <laughs> well, we got you know, on top of the King Cakes you have a little different color sugar, okay. so we do a little bit of dusting. Um, the one I really like is, you know, our family created banana foster. We have it, which is flambe with rum. So at Palace, where we feature rums, um, you know, we do a derivative of the bourbon milk punch, but it's a banana faucet milk punch. <laughs> and so it's flavored with bananas, some cinnamon, and the uh, and rum. But it's another one of these frozen drinks. So people really... The nice thing is you get to an end of a meal and you don't want to have a dessert. These drinks have become the go-to for a lot of our clientele. And being in the French Quarter, New Orleans, it's the ideal thing. You're finishing a meal, you don't really, and you can take it and go outside and see what, what's going on. There's a lot of interest in wanting to walk around the French Quarter. So our adult milkshakes have become very popular. Um, um, we just had that Bananas Foster last night, by the way, and it was not, not the drink, but the whole thing. Yeah, it was... <laughs> Oh, it was so good. Um, uh, uh, do you have a do you have a favorite or perhaps a short list? I hate it when people ask me my favorite thing. I'm like everything, literally everything I've ever tasted is my favorite. Um, but uh, do you have a do you have a favorite cocktail? Something that you just go back to all the time? Maybe a Ramus Gin Fizz. Uh, I don't know why, but I just. It's, uh, I can't say it's my, it's on the top of a bunch of, you know, I've always loved the breakfast drinks in uh, New Orleans, you know, a great uh, herb milk punch. A Sazerac, you know, is a wonderful, uh, I put it more in the category of appetitif, you know, it's something I want to enjoy before I'm going to have a meal. Um, you know, and just... The flavoring of it, you think of a Sazerac. My God, it's it's the whiskey, but then you rim the glass with, a, um, you know, Herb Saint is our local Anise. Yeah. And then you're putting in these different bitters. I mean, there's so many ingredients in these bitters. They, they were created by pharmacists in New Orleans way back because of for medicinal purposes. Um, but it was all food-based. Um, bitter, the bitters are based from food products, spices. Um, so, I mean, what's going on when you put all that with a great bourbon, you know, boom, that's, I mean, makes your mouth go, wow, what's going on in here? So, uh, so I've been fortunate that I've always been able to enjoy, uh, been exposed growing up in New Orleans to just some incredible spirits, cocktails. So you mentioned you um, were reviewing a restaurant in New York uh, recently. What other things, besides all the stuff you're doing with this, what, what else are you involved in? Shoot. <laughs> Our biggest thing we've been working on the last five years is a, is a new culinary institute in downtown New Orleans. And I say culinary, but it's really... You know, we're going to start off this January with a baking and uh, chef curriculum. But it's it's really a, an institute that we hope evolves into a lot more than just training chefs. So we say hospitality. We want to focus on the front of the house, 
service. Um, and our real plan from day one when we found this incredible property, it's 100,000 square feet, it's a beautiful building right in downtown New Orleans, was to partner up with all the different universities in town. I mean, we don't want to recreate the, the wheel here, but we think our industry, you know, when I've made reference to the institutes like Culinary Institute of America, what it started doing to help young Americans be classically trained, it's changed the food scene. You know, you had fine dining restaurants in the downtowns, then you had mom and pop's neighborhood restaurants. Our mom and pop neighborhood restaurants are at the same quality of a, you know, four-star restaurant that would, would have existed in a formal environment downtown. So that was education. And so this the the food industry is huge. I mean, we're the biggest employer behind the government. Uh, and it's just involves a lot of things. I mean, uh, I don't want to ramble on. To, I mean, no. I can ramble on a lot about this institute. <laughs> All right, we like rambling. Uh -huh. <laughs> so when I say we want it to evolve, I'll use this as an example. Um, there's no architecture school in America that has any concentration on food service design. Hmm. Now, architects will give you a restaurant. They love to, but they'll ask you, who's doing your kitchen? And typically, it's the person that sells you the equipment. And they have the computers, and they put it on that, and they send it to the architect, and the architect stamps it. Mm -hmm. And it's a person who's selling certain brands is designing your kitchen. Our hope is, is that we can go to the next level to where there can be people that are trained in what is the ultimate kitchen. Um, you know, we've got to evolve the equipment. You know, we just redid Palace Cafe's kitchen after 27 years, and next to each station that has traditional, which would be gas burning, we put in an induction range next to it, trying to get our young culinarians to, to learn how to cook on a different, but it's, it's gonna be, you know, it's what is going to be the future, best uses, best pieces of equipment, a lot of research development. So with Noki, you know, our idea is we don't want to start an architecture school. Tulane has an incredible one two miles up St. Charles Avenue. All they have to do is hire one teacher that knows food service design and create a, at, a, at an MBA level for architects to go get this specialty to where they really know kitchens and put that under the Noki brand. So I mean it's one teacher teaching something that no one teaches and it's because we've created this Noki Institute which is about trying to create education to all different areas of the food world. I mean you take Tulane and LSU medical schools, I mean how much opportunity is there with, with tropical science uh, school of, of food being part, the R&D of food going into medicine, going into healthcare. So really we're trying to create a new industry in New Orleans at higher education, but we want to focus on the food world. It's endless what it can be. So, but, um, but no, we've always been involved in a lot of things. I mean, we never, I grew up with parents that they would always say, you can't just be inside your four walls. You, you have to be a part of your community be a part of your industry, um, you know, and get out there. So, I mean, we've all, my goodness, this town has so many great efforts going on and good causes and, you know, uh, I, it's hard to kind of list the things that that I've been involved in over the years. Hmm. So, uh, what is one that? fun thing, we just, we're gonna do this, uh, 30-something years ago, we created a Louisiana Children's Museum in downtown, you know, in the warehouse district. And um, so the last year, they've been building a brand new facility in City Park, our municipal park. And, uh, and so we're gonna do the uh, food service in the new Children's Museum, which is really exciting, because also in City Park, you have a, another effort going on, Grow That. You know, we do Who Dat, so, Grow that, and it's a it's a farm. It's a working farm, so that people can learn and be educated. So, 
we're really excited about taking what we're doing in the museum with the kids. We've got the food, you know, the farming going on and what we can do together. Um, it's going to be a great project, you know, being able to work with the kids and educate them on where your food comes from and how to cook it. It's going to be fun. So. Want to talk about that, um, kind of what we're doing tomorrow? What are for the oyster recycling? Oh, right. Yeah, I was reading about this. You, uh, you helped institute a oyster shell recycling program. Right. Um, you know, I, I love fishing, and I'm going to my cousin has a great fishing camp just about 30 minutes south of the city. And I'm driving down there one day, and where a lot of the oyster boats, you know, it's a, it's a commercial fishing village as well as recreational uh, camps. There's this huge mound of limestone rock, and they've got a front loader that's scooping it up and putting it on an oyster lugger so that when they're going out, they're rebuilding beds because we have to move where the oysters are if we're going to do freshwater diversions to rebuild the marsh. And the biggest obstacle is it's not fishermen catching fish that move around, it's the oyster farmers that have a lot of time invested in making a bed. So there are a lot of efforts to make beds in different areas so that we can bring fresh water in. And, but I'm like, that's, there's no limestone in Louisiana. I don't know how far you got to go to find limestone. So I'm like, we're buying a product, we're shipping it here, and we're trying to rebuild beds. When we have, so we can grow oysters. All right, we have oyster shells that we throw away that go to the landfill for forever. And it's just, it makes no sense. So that kind of instigated, what can we do to recycle? Uh, how can we get these oyster shells as part of rebuilding the coast instead of letting them fill up our landfill. So so it worked out. I mean, it's been a very successful. How many times? I mean, we're talking like 400,000 tons that we've recycled. <laughs> miles and miles of new oyster reefs we've been able to fill, which also replacing the, um, the barrier islands that we're losing. So they're serving a dual purpose. They're a new ground to raise additional oysters, but they're also helping in coastal erosion. Right, so th they can certainly build a bed, but they we put them in these baskets. Um, it's like a sleeve, you fill it up, you tie it. Then it goes inside a big crate so that these could be anchored. And they're like, looks like this table and they're maybe this deep. And so our coastal erosion, that coastline, wherever it is in the marsh or what, out on the, it just keeps eroding. So if you take this basket and you put it 10 yards in front of where the existing coast is and you anchor them in, it just naturally will fill, and instead of the erosion going in one direction, we build back the coastline. And that's what's worked really nice with this oyster recycling. So, I mean, because of that, we're making progress. Uh, so it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's something we should do. Um, what's, the, what's the food and drink community like around here? Like, what's it, what's it like? Uh, not just not just uh, you know people coming in and enjoying things obviously, but what's it like working working with these farmers and uh, and these producers um, and and other restaurants around town? I mean, I feel sorry for people that do other stuff. I mean, to have to talk to a farmer or go out on a boat fishing and you know being outdoors and just seeing all these understanding where it's coming from and then bring it into the restaurant all these wonderful talented people that want to cook you know and they they want to see someone enjoy it um, I don't know I mean I've never not enjoyed this experience you know the daily ritual of that food part now trying to make the business work and looking at the payroll and all the other things you know that's not the fun part of the day but the food part the product part, you know, that this is in season, it just came in the back door, you know, then we get to prep it in a way that we can give it to someone and they, and they really just have a great experience. That's good stuff. My dad always said, 
what he liked about our business was people came to us to have a good time, you know, and you really help create memories for people, people together, celebrating, as opposed to if I was a banker, people coming to me, they need money. If I'm an attorney, they're coming to me, they got, they got a problem. Doctor, you're going because you're hurting. I mean, people come to us to have a good celebration. It's a real positive attribute. We've got a bit more of this interview left, but first we're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at San Diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And back to the interview. Um, what do you what do you see coming in the future, other other than this this awesome institute? Uh, like, you know, what a what a, what do you what do you hope for for y'all and for New Orleans? And I guess what what other problems are you working on tackling? You know, one of my hopes with this new institute, Noki, um, it amazed me how many young men and women work in New Orleans restaurants, and they never get past the line cook position. They don't become that manager. They don't become the sous chef chef. And I'm convinced it's because they don't have that formal education. Uh, and a lot of these people aren't going to be able to leave state and go to a Johnson & Wales, a Colorado Sioux. It's just not going to happen. So 
one of our biggest from day one mission with this new institute is we want to take we certainly want to take individuals that have been cooking for 15 years or whatever. I mean, they're in it, and they know what they're doing. They have great skills, very talented. But be able to put them in that classic environment where they, I say, learn a language. I mean, if you don't, you can make hollandaise as like a Michael Jordan playing basketball, but if you don't know the word emulsify and, and the chemistry behind what you do and why it works, it... it I think it keeps you from having confidence, and that co lack of confidence is where these men and women don't go to the next level, because there's so many I've worked with over the years that I've said, come on, why don't you take a little responsibility? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good doing what I'm doing. And then I've seen young men and women from out of state that have graduated from these wonderful programs, and so many of them go, I want to cook in New Orleans. And so it's this young, confident, you know, someone just graduated from college school is coming in and they're getting the sous chef position and then they become the chefs. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly not knocking an Emerald Lagasse, but I mean, it couldn't be a greater example of, you know, Emerald came in, started working with my family and, you know, look, look where he's gone. So I really hope this institute, because in New Orleans, you know, we have certainly have our challenges when it comes to, I'll just say it's race relationships. And so and a lot of people, leadership on both sides, when you're having a conversation, you know, a lot of time the leadership will say, well, I don't see anybody out of the African-American community being the chef or being the business owner. You know, you know at some point, you know, we, that has to evolve. And so I think this is an opportunity for our industry instead of people being, you know, stuck and can't get to the next level that this should open that door. And if because we have the talent. It's like musicians. Our jazz musicians are worldwide. We have athletes that are just incredibly, probably have more of them in the NFL than anywhere. We have the same talent that can cook. They just don't have that education to where they're gonna go be a chef. My hope is in a short period of time, there'll be men and women out of this community that'll be a chef in New York City, the East Coast, the West Coast, and really, changing that path that hadn't really been here in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, so that's a big one. Yeah. But it's, it would help New Orleans so much, you know. I mean, we're a wonderful city. We have so much going on for us. But I just, you know, my dream is it's a great city. And it's not a great city when, like we're saying, I mean, not every man and woman in this community has a path to really live the American dream. My family has lived the American dream. We had nothing, you know, and we worked hard and we had a lot of good luck. We're Irish, uh, you know, and good mentors and we we're educated. And, and it helped us live an American dream. So that's yeah. something I hope we can do for New Orleans. Thank you. Um, I guess speaking of learning is there anything that you feel like you're still learning personally <laughs> sorry i didn't mean to get personal <laughs> you know i mean you, you're just going through different stages in life i mean i have grown-up kids that are now you know getting educated getting great because they want to come into the family business uh, my nephew's already in the business working with us. Um, so I'm kind of at this stage, and I grew up with, my dad was certainly this way. He didn't want to be an 80-year-old going to work telling everybody what to do. He wanted me to get educated so I could come back home and sit around with him and the team, and we'd talk about something, and I'd be able to go, we haven't tried this, or why are we doing that? Because I'd gotten educated in that in a short period of time, the team would be going, Junior's not here because he's Junior. Junior's here because he's got some skill and could become part of the leadership and the team. So we had these early uh, transitions from a senior generation to the next generation of being able to run the business. Um, and I really valued the time after I graduated from college when I went and worked outside the family 
before I came back. Value that and to see it, to be on the other side where I'm now my dad watching my kids go get that exposure. And they're smart. They get, they're doing better than I did with what their experiences are. But they're bringing it home. And so I'm looking forward to transitioning out of having to, you know, it's their turn. I want to be on the sideline. I want to help them. I want to be their, uh, you know, their resource. Whatever they need, I want to, but it's their turn to do it. So, so it's a wonderful part of my life. I mean, I'm freeing up. I don't have all the responsibilities, and I've got a great team that they don't need me to open a restaurant, close a restaurant, and uh, so life's pretty good. Yeah, do more of that celebration. It's where I can Here and there. live life. Hmm. Yeah, is there anything we, uh, you would like to speak to that we didn't ask you about? Or, uh... All right, well, I'm going to do this. Okay. Just our philosophy. I mean, we have four restaurants, <laughs> and I mean, yeah. Bourbon House was when we first decided, let's focus on a spirit, and with all the history we've talked about with Bourbon, it was, let's do the spirits here. Um, Palace Cafe, more recently, we did a major renovation. We added a a bar on the second level because we really didn't have a, a bar and we decided to do rum. Now I mean rum, my God, hundreds of years ago we started growing sugarcane in Louisiana and it was the Jesuits and one of the first areas that they grew sugarcane was right across Canal Street where Palace Cafe is. I mean that's where they were growing and I mean sugar's what makes rum. So. So that was our connection with wanting to do that spirit. And then uh, at the steakhouse, it's always you know been that classic old world spirits, the scotch, the rum, I mean, vodka, gin. But my family's Irish. So we have an Irish whiskey collection there just to pay some homage to our heritage. Uh, and it's a nice way that we can do it. Uh, and then, you know, our youngest, Oh, well, oh. you know, so we just recently added a, a martini cart. All so, right, I mean, table-side martini So service. we go do table-side martinis, and, uh, you know, this is what we keep saying. I'm, I'm a big, I don't want to change for the sake of change, but you got to evolve. You know, so there's a lot of fun for us trying to evolve things. And this is where, you, instead of that martini just showing up, it's a whole different experience. I mean, you're looking at these incredible products that are going to garnish that are the options to take your martini to another level and a real trained professional that's making it perfect the right temperature the right glass i mean life's short let's eat you know do it right <laughs> eat good and then uh but our newest restaurant tableau um you know it's it's in a part of the quarter where originally the French Quarter was built. It's right next to St. Louis Cathedral. Uh, you know, when they founded the city and decided this is where we're going to put the build the city, there was a priest there, and they said, build a church there. And it's the oldest cathedral in America, but it's it's where the city was developed. We're right next to it. A block behind it is the oldest ballroom in America, because we celebrate. We've always celebrated. So it's just that feeling of being around that area there. We do sparkling and champagne, you know, because it's a, it's where we should be celebrating. And it's part of uh, Le Petit Theater, which is the oldest community theater in America. So it's about going to enjoy theater in this wonderful restaurant with a balcony and a courtyard. Champagne, sparkling, kind of works in that environment. So I love the fact that we've focus on something and because each of our restaurants is totally different different experiences but it just it's just a matter of time for we can kind of find something that we can specialize in so, it's been fun I don't know what we're going to do at the Louisiana Children's Museum <laughs> you got any ideas all ears <laughs> 
Yeah, we, we were we were talking yesterday to um, uh, Isaac Troop. Um, Bryce. Bryce, Bryce and... uh, Yeah, um, but um, yeah, they, they, they were they were talking about how New Orleans is different than many other places in the way that it is that it treats alcohol and the way that it you know uh, the way that kids are allowed to grow up around it rather than it being. You know, the kind of like Puritan thing. Has that been your experience? You know, and I mean, let's, my experience in France, you certainly, you know, consuming wine and stuff like that at a table at home from an early age. I mean, I worked in kitchens where we would sit down and do our family meal before the service and we certainly drank wine, you know. So I don't think it's just New Orleans, but I think New Orleanians, we live like I'll never forget uh, who was the uh, he was one of the original anchormen uh, Brinkley David Brinkley so he was whatever channel he had Cronkite three of them did the nightly news and he was a dear friend he was in New Orleans all the time and he had had he was having dinner with my Aunt Ella and a handful of people it was probably a Lindy Boggs you know wonderful group of characters and and Ella, the whole night, kept saying to him, you know, we, we can't get this right. And we're not, you know, it was all things that she was disappointed with, with the leadership of the city, and we couldn't get anything, you know. And he was just a polite gentleman. They had a fantastic meal. And I think Emma was very young, the chef, so it would be back in those 80, late 80s. So he calls her the next morning. He says, Ella, it pains me that you're that upset with New Orleans. He said, first of all, couldn't have had more fun last night. Always loved the company and the food was fantastic. Then he says, nobody's traveled as much as I. I've seen so much in my life doing what I do. He said, and I want to tell you this. When I go to Italy, nothing works. They're on strike. Everything's off time. He says, but Italians, they do something better than any. They live life. They're daily cultures, they live life. He says, anywhere else I travel, certainly in America, there's only one other place that I can say the local people live life. He says, it's New Orleans. Y'all live life. He says, get over all the stuff not working. So here I'm the next generation and I've already said I want my city to be great. You know, I want it to be perfectly clean and everything working and all that stuff. But when I think of that, it helps me get over my love-hate relationship where I'm like disappointed we're not doing something better because that man was right. I mean, we really connect with each other all day long and, uh, and we live life. So we have arrived at the end of this interview. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed doing it. Yeah, and I hope that you also had someone bring you po'boys Oh, yeah. In the middle of it. Or that maybe you went and got a po' boy first. Oh, we should have put like a po' boy warning at the top of the episode. We should. Rookie mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Rookie mistake. <laughs> I When we first get back from these trips, we, we have these massive, we get transcripts of everything, and we have this big document where we just put in quotes that we like. And I remember for some some interviews, it ends up being the whole, the whole interview. interview. <laughs> and you eventually have to go like, well, well we can't use everything. Yes. So. Yeah, I think he was one he was one of the ones who made it into a lot of episodes, but I I really get a kick out of just kind of going through the whole thing. So, I hope I hope y'all also feel the same way. I hope so too. And I also hope that you'll you'll reach out. Yeah. You'll contact us. Uh-huh. You can email us. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We're also on social media. You can find us at saverpod at uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. We do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. 
Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursion? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.